Hello and welcome back to Society 2.0. My name is Bob Luttenbach and I will be your host. Someone left me in the booth with the microphone, so I figured I'd have a go at it. Hope everyone's doing well today. It is a beautiful Saturday afternoon in Orlando, Florida. I think it's like 66 degrees out. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, today we're going to go back and we're going to listen to part two of my conversation with futurist and consultant and director of content for AI World Expo, Jeff Orr. And my first part of the conversation, if you haven't heard it, I highly encourage you to, to, to um, listen to that one first if you can. But we're going to continue our dive into, as I said, the trends that he sees or that he saw coming out of that conference in December and just get his overall general take on the state of AI. You know, it's funny, this morning my 10-year-old was saying to me, why, why do you do this? Like, what is the purpose of this podcast? Um, and he, he animates. So I in turn asked him, why, why do you animate? And he said, because I really enjoy doing it. It's a lot of fun. So I said, well, that's why I do it. And, but the other main reason, he, he made me think a little bit about it. And, and I really do it because I want to start a broader discussion about how machine learning under the umbrella of AI and I guess AI in general, although the term is just so broad, are going to continue to transform the future of work, the future of education. I think it's a discussion that we have amongst my friends and, and the, my colleagues, but we're, you know, geeks, essentially. I mean, I've been in the, and I currently am in the technology consulting space. I've been doing it for 25 years, and I've had my own firm for 20 years. And I've started off as a developer and have gotten into all different, <laughs> I, I've run the gamut of, of all the things I've done in, in the tech space. And we talk about it all the time because it's really interesting and it's fun, but I don't think there's a really broader discussion around, among people in general and uh, how it's going to change their lives. And I really do think that at some point in the near future, there will be some breakthrough, some magical breakthrough in how AI can perform. At, it'll, it'll take it to a whole new level. I mean... I, I was just talking to um, a colleague of mine and we were saying, you know, and I, and I mentioned it, I think in the last podcast that, you know, in 2000, it's been 12 years, just 12 years or now 13 years, no, 12 years since the iPhone came out. And in that time frame, so many things have changed. The, the app, the app store has transformed the development space. They're moving more and more capability of machine learning to the devices, which is going to create more powerful devices. And they'll be able to do more on the edge, as they call it. For you know, There's usually the cloud. Everything's done in the cloud or at some server level. But on the edge means that it can do it locally. So it'll be able to do it on the devices, which is extremely powerful. And as the chips get more and more sophisticated, um, they'll be able to do more and more. But the back to my, man, I, I sometimes I'll just rant on and on about something. But back to what I was originally saying is I, I want a broader discussion ab among the po general population. I try to tr I'm trying to create content about something very sophisticated and technical that is easily digestible 
by the masses. Because I think it's the masses that are going to be more greatly affected than the tech community. I mean, we're going to be affected as well because, you know, there's new careers that are being created. Data scientists really didn't exist in 2007 or, or 2000. And there's going to be more and more need for the combination of the data scientist and the linguist and a bunch of other skills that need to come together to make natural language understanding and natural language processing become more sophisticated so we can have better, more natural conversations with things like Alexa and and Google and Bixby and whatever else might come out. But as I said, the goal really is to make something that people will be interested in at every level. Uh, Because I really think we need to change how we educate people all the way down at the elementary school level. Uh, It can't be just at college. We can't rely on businesses to, you know, solely look for people who are critical thinkers and are potential leaders and say, look, you don't have the other skills I have, but because you have critical thinking skills, I'll figure out a way to retrain you. We'll we'll invest in you. We need to get people started early. Um, And I know it's difficult. It's not a simple task because we, we, you know, back in 2000, no one would have predicted app development for phones would have been a career that, that, that somebody could do. So, you know, how do we predict what, what is it, you know, 16 years from now, someone's going to graduate, um, graduate college. What's that going to look like? And what, what is the landscape going to look like? What, what new careers are going to be out there? So someone's going to start first grade next year, 16 years from now or so they'll be out of college. Well, how do we train them now into something that for a job that might not even exist. So smarter people than me will need to figure out how that all works. And I'm sure there are people working on it. I'm, I don't think we're in a vacuum right now, but I just want to make it or at least keep that dialogue open for people to say, this is, this is really, really important. This is something we can't ignore. And then for people that are already in the workforce, you know, do they need to start thinking about, especially, especially people that are in organizations where their jobs are highly transactional, you know, which is where machine learning excels uh, and automation excels. And automation has been around forever, but machine learning is basically automation on steroids. So because now with, with machine learning, data models can learn versus prescriptive development stuff that I've talked about in, in the previous podcast. But Companies and employees that have highly transactional systems are, as Jeff said in the previous podcast, they're ripe for disruption. AI is a perfect tool to fit in there, but what does that mean for the workforce? Yes, we can move people and shift them into other locations and give them maybe actually more enjoyable work because highly transactional jobs probably or may not be the most enjoyable task to do. So maybe they can be retrained to learn how to work with the AI or train the AI. and I know that I had brought up before that, you know, once levels of, and I've read this, I'm not bringing it up because I somehow came up with it, but, you know, AI will be get so sophisticated at some point or machine learning that it'll rely on other machines to train it. And obviously somewhere along the loop, there's always going to be some human element. But as that gets more sophisticated, the level of education, the level of training that the person will be at the end of that food chain, 
that's going to be still involved with AI, their level of, of know-how and smarts is going to be pretty high. So how do we make, how do we give a, a position or how do we create positions for everyone else in the food chain? And that's why I do this to educate and to try to create the, and, and keep the conversation going. So everyone's thinking about this. Employers, if you're a CEO out there and you're listening, you're a manager, um, you're thinking about how does this, how is this going to transform my organization? What will this mean for the people that work for me? And is there another spot? Does it offer an opportunity to diversify what I'm currently working on? And, and maybe branch out into different areas where my current people will still be needed. You know, it, it's, it's a tough question. And a lot of this is um, futurism. You know, we don't really know what's going to happen. But I'd rather have the discussion and, and figure out how we can start today and, uh, you know, not plan to fail, I guess you could say. Uh, and also figure out income. Like, how are we going to supply basic income for people if we can't figure out how to slot people into positions within an organization. I, I mean, there's, there's so many options and I don't know, honestly, what the right answer is. Uh, you know, like I said, a lot, this is going to be decided by people way, way smarter than I am. I hope. Um, cause I'm not really that smart. So, and if that's the case, you know, we need to get to work on it now, but I want everyone, everyone to be thinking about it. All that from my nine-year-old or my 10-year-old's question of why do you do this? So anyway, let's get into the news. Um, I said before that I was creating that new news segment. So let's get into it. Um, I found some really interesting articles. One was about Alzheimer's. And this was in Medical News Today. And, and many of you may have read this, but if not, uh, here you go. So artificial intelligence predicts onset of Alzheimer's. Again, this is from Medical News Today. It's by Catherine Paddock, PhD. And basically what this article talks about is that AI was able to predict patients that would be diagnosed with Alzheimer's six years in advance using the scans that they were fed of the individual's brains. Um, basically, researchers from the University of California, San Francisco, used positron emission tom tomography, or better known as PET, images of 1,002 people's brains to train the deep learning algorithm. So they used 90% of those images to teach the algorithm how to spot Alzheimer's and the other 10% to verify performance. And then they tested the algorithm on PET images of the brains of 40 people. From those 40, the algorithm accurately predicted which individuals would receive a final diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And they say on average, the diagnosis came more than six years after the scans. So that, that's pretty amazing. So imagine how this will help people to be able to know six years ahead, potentially, because this is like just one paper, that you are potentially going to have Alzheimer's or at least the onset of Alzheimer's in about six years. And what that could mean for you, what, what that could mean for treatment as well. So I, I found that really interesting. Again, 
This is in Medical News Today, and it's by Catherine Paddock, PhD. The other article, this is really short. It was really on C, it was on CNBC, and it was it was actually on last year, not in the in November. And it was world in China. China's state-run news agency unveiled an AI-powered news anchor on China's World Internet Conference, or at China's World Internet Conference. The news anchor is actually modeled on an existing anchor. His name is, uh, I'm going to say it wrong, Zhang Zhao. And the anchor, uh, the, the AI anchor, learned how to be or, or talk or speak from other live broadcast video. And it is able to, it's basically manned the news desk or <laughs> AI the news desk uh, 24 hours a day. That, that's pretty amazing. You can check that out. It's on cnbc.com. And I'll put these links in the show notes too. But they were the two news articles. I found, I just thought that was pretty funny that there's actually, I mean, I think it's bad. Honestly, in my opinion, I am so sick of the 24-hour news cycle. It is, it is literally about an hour's worth of news and then 23 hours, or actually it's more like 24 hours and five minutes of experts, pundits, and analysts, and then five minutes of real news. And with the political climate today, I just can't stand it. So now if you can have an AI on the desk, 24, 7, 365, the same person, God, I just can't imagine how boring that might get. But anyway, that was the news. That's the news today. Uh, so let's move on, and we're going to actually get into the interview with Jeff now. Before we do, though, I'll say if, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, suggestions, you can reach me on Twitter or Instagram at SocietyWire, or just email me directly at bob at SocietyWire.net. I'm always looking for um, ideas about who I can interview. We're probably going to do a couple of the podcasts coming up where it'll just be me and, and not an interviewee. Not that I don't have people lined up, but I just want to give that a go. They'll be shorter than the interviews, of course, because although I do tend to be a little windy, I don't think I could talk for quite that long. But your comments, please, they are definitely welcome. Always want to hear from people. And I'll read, uh, if, you, if you send me something, I will read it on the podcast. If you have questions, I will try to answer them on the next podcast or whenever you send them to me. What else do we have to talk about before we get started? Is there anything else? Can you think of any? What else should we talk about? No, I, I think we're good. I think we're good. I think let's just get right started into uh, the conversation with Jeff. Before we jump in, I guess I should set, set the stage a little bit. This is mid-conversation. Um, this is part two. And we're starting to talk about the future of work. So let's, let's get into it. Well, let's, you know, let's dive into that a little bit. We talk about segues. Because I've interviewed quite a few people and, and it always goes back to the jobs part, right? The future of work. Um, and there's a great book called Human and Machine. And it's all about how we can kind of marry there, create some synergies around what you said, like let's leverage people to what they're good at, move them in to different roles. Um, and I just recently saw a McKinsey Global Institute report that said by 2030, there's an estimate of 30% of jobs that will, could be automated. And that's that task-driven, transactional-type job. Certainly. But the reality of it is that the people that are doing those task-driven, oriented jobs aren't, and, I, and, and I, I mean this with all due respect, 
that aren't typically able to easily migrate from the task-oriented type work to a more complicated or creativity-oriented role. I mean, the reason they're in that role is because that's the role they fit best with in the organization for the most part. There are Mm -hmm. people that I'll call misplaced geniuses. They're in a role that could be better somewhere else. But for the most part, they're in that role because that's really the level of work that they're good at. Um, and so I don't, I honestly don't think there's enough conversation to talk talks about, okay, what, yeah, we can talk about the nice euphemism of we can move, use people in a better way. But in reality, there's probably people that we won't be able to do anything with or that would be right. They would have to get retrained. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a need when, when talking about like the skills gap that exists. Yeah. You're not going to be able to take everybody who's doing that transaction oriented, you know, um, data processing, uh, you know, copy uh, the the 40 fields on this form into a database, you know, the data entry types of pieces that can certainly be uh, automated through OCR and scanning today with with very high reliability in terms of their their ability to to capture something in print and put it into a system. And I don't mean it in a cold way. Like I don't think organizations are trying to look at this and say, where can we cut Mary Jane and Fred and like, just get rid of them. You know, that that reskilling is super important. And I think anytime that there's a shift in the way a market or an industry or a business or a role or a function occurs, we've got to be thinking about that training and development component. Um, my best example there is observing the change that's occurred in a company like AT and T. You know, people can like them or dislike them for their experiences with them. What I think they've done amazingly well is when they realized that that the cloud computing was going to be a disruptive force for the telecom industry. They took that change to heart. One, from a technology perspective, they took all internal and external services. Uh, at AT&T, and they moved them to the cloud. They rewrote them. So they had a certain amount of talent that was capable, and, and they, they took the folks that were focused on developing and evolving those services, and they, they made sure they had the, the cloud um, component and, and made that shift. Now, in realizing that they're doing this, there's a certain portion of their workforce that no longer fit that new model, and so they they've reskilled hundreds of thousands of workers and it's still a, it's a still work in progress but um, a good portion of the workers have have gone through that some chose to move on that it wasn't going to be a good fit for them and so i think you're going to have this you're going to have this this disparity between um, organizations that are kind of driving that change and realize that they they can't just kind of rip and replace their their workforce uh, they need to be able to retrain them and reskill them and and arguably prepare those workers for whatever that future of work look, should look like, at least in, you know from what they can control. Um, there's a need for academic institutions um, and not even maybe not even just higher ed, maybe even primary and um, primary and and secondary kind of education to be rethinking the way uh, what tools are being used and the types of skills because as you say. Not everybody will necessarily fit into that. Maybe it's hard to pick words without, you know, uh, picking the 
picking on something or, or maybe choosing them poorly, but some someone who's going to be making those, I'll call them higher level decisions, right? So when a process doesn't work, an exception occurs, you have that human in the loop. I think that human in the loop piece is going to remain. So rather than thinking about job loss or the time it's going to take to reskill the labor force, knowing that some portion won't, I tend to look at the opportunities then to just augment human intelligence with automation. And I'll give you a, a, a really a couple, couple examples actually come to mind. The first is how do you move the clipboard, what I call the clipboard workforce? Those that are used to dealing with forms and sign-offs and checklists and so forth for whatever their particular role is. Um, you have a couple issues there. Uh, in a lot of markets around the world, you have an aging uh, population of your workforce who has been using that kind of process for decades. And so if you introduce a digital kind of solution, whether it just be digital capture and uh, whether it be uh, feedback loops and whatnot, there, there's a portion of your audience that will adapt to that. And then there's those who are, who are basically looking at it and going, I don't know, it's just so hard. I don't want to deal with it. My mom. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> and you, so then how do you deal with that? I think there are tools that can be used. And, and I should balance that kind of the aging population workforce, balance that with um, younger generations that are coming into the workforce that have different expectations about uh, the tools and the ways that they can and will communicate and interact. And those expectations are highly different. And yeah, so their expectations on privacy are different. It, it's, very much it, so. It's amazing. Yeah, about what, what, what can be shared and what's considered public versus you know, what would be considered private are, are, are very different. So organizations are, are already dealing with that type of transition. And if they're not doing it in a big way yet, they, they're, they're going to be um, having to manage through it. So there's the, the example that I wanted to provide is kind of more of the, uh, I'll call it more of a managerial type function. So larger, larger organization, maybe, you know, hundreds of hundreds of people in the organization, they may have a, a role to do things like approve expense reports. One of the challenges these organizations generally face is that they have these legacy systems. And uh, I did some research earlier in 2018 that was looking at, I actually named some names and, and I had to pull them out um, because I, I, did, I did name some names and, and the organization I was writing for felt that it might be too strong of a perspective or they might get some backlash for these uh, larger system companies that have an amazing installed base of systems that are outdated. And what I mean by outdated is that they don't have the ability to interact with uh, a browser or they don't have the, interact uh, the ability to interact with a mobile device. And so this is severely limiting based on that younger generation coming in or the kind of the digital first types of initiatives that organizations may take place. So augmenting human intelligence, that example would be uh, if you're a manager and you receive a request for, um, from one of your one of your team that says, please, you know, please approve this expense. Uh, what do you do? You, you, you learn those behaviors over time. And the company may have trained you on a particular system. Uh, you may have certain approval levels that you can do, but you may still kind of get that one of, okay, I, I, I'm not going to, 
approve it yet because I, I'm not quite sure what to do. And so the augmenting human intelligence component is being able to use the data that exists in the system to say, oh, well, Bob, your peer Jack over here is uh, kind of at the same, same role and responsibility. And four out of five times, your peers like Jeff approve this. So it's the four out of five dentist surveyed kind of a uh, approach. And, and with that, you can you know, de-risk the decision-making uh, and, and be able to speed to, to a result faster. Uh, same kind of, of behavior could be used in, in a lot of uh, processes that today might be seen as very labor-intensive or hands-on uh, to be able to go through uh, you know, when you find when you see this type of behavior or action, uh, here's how you respond to it. And if you're not sure because you're seeing it for the first time, here's what others have done in this instance. So you kind of have that knowledge base that's that's constantly evolving. You're getting information out of the so-called engineer's notebook. You know, the person who's been dealing with all the exceptions for a while, and and now you're getting all that knowledge pushed out to all the workers so that in turn they can make better decisions on behalf of the organization and, and feel more as a part uh, of, the, of the company. You to be able to embrace all the different generations. You, know, you, you may have some that, uh, some of that process or for some of the workers that have been there for a while, may, you may need to look at things like uh, hand-eye coordination and what you're asking them to do you know, on what type of device and what type of application and providing that flexibility. Again, this goes back, there's no lack of technology. It, it's about identifying the, the business case, identifying the use case and being able to, to bring those organizations forward. Uh, I also think it's going to, um, it's impacting organizations culturally because it's not only saying, how do we deliver services more effectively within the organization? It's it's asking departments that historically have not interacted, um, such as IT and HR, other than the, the hiring or the dismissal of employees, to start thinking about needs and to be thinking about capabilities and to be thinking about accessibility uh, for different needs, to be able to cater to uh, the, the requests of those different generations of workers and what their expect expectations are. So if one is most comfortable performing a set of tasks and and checking them off and 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 signing their name on the bottom of something that it was done and yet for another worker that's that's done uh in a messaging application on a mobile device so be it what do you see as the biggest industries that are going to be affected over the next two years from based on the conference that you know the ai expo world that you were just at what did you see as the biggest, like th this, the trend is really headed in this direction. I can see that in the next two years, this is kind of going to be inevitable. That's a great question. And it's hard to answer because I think there's so much fundamental change that can occur uh, across industries. Just the, so the way I, the, when I, when I was helping architect AI world, I kind of almost thought of it as a mesh. So you have these vertical industries that have particular regulation or requirements they have to comply to for security and privacy and so forth. And then you have these horizontal roles and business functions. So that's what creates the mesh. 
And so what I was looking for were as many opportunities as I could to find those intersections. And I think you have to have some balance between those two views. I almost think, think of it like a zooming in, zooming out kind of behavior um, to be able to resonate. So when I'm thinking about verticals, I'm probably most interested in the growth that's going to occur in healthcare. Because it's, it's, a, it's a legacy environment that, for all intents and purposes, is still struggling to be able to, to embrace kind of the digital function. There's been resistance or there perhaps there's been regulation that's made that transition difficult. Going forward, I think that, that the opportunity to, to automate and to better gain insights from data is going to happen not in those very forward research labs only. It's going to be surfacing more information about people, about people who are seen as you know, patients and, and learning more about the complexities. And why that's so intriguing to me is that it, it fundamentally changes the way that education for the medical community uh, it is done today. And it's uh, someone, I don't remember who this was or when this was now, but someone made the comment of, you know, what's the difference between um, all of the uh, medical doctor students that, uh, that go and take their, their final exams? You know, what's the difference between um, the one who passed with the lowest score and the one who passed at the top of the class? Nothing. Still called doctor still called a doctor and and so you know you then have to those individuals then have to decide how they want to apply that knowledge how much time they want to invest in in continuing to kind of learn what's next or to observe their own patients and be able to say huh i'm seeing something here that's that's not in line with what i was uh, educated about and to make those observations and to find other like-minded professionals who can have those discussions. I think data is enabling the healthcare industry to be able to have a broader discussion. And, and whether it be about particular afflictions, whether it be about just certain behaviors that have been learned over time that now should be questioned for societal reasons, for regulatory reasons for whatever that motivation is. Um, I think, I think healthcare is, is just in right for, right for benefiting from all of the benefits of it. In a horizontal perspective, I think it's sales and marketing that are going to now go. And so if, if operations from a uh, operations slash finance from a data analytics perspective, we're kind of the first wave of, of adopters of, of these data sciences. Where, where is we, are we going to see the next, most value next? And I think it's in the sales and marketing functions. Uh, that opens up a whole uh, multi-hour or <laughs> dedicated event to, to talking just about that, that function uh, and an ecosystem supporting it. But I'd say where I see money and interest, it's, it's being able to, uh, to automate, to enhance the way that, that functions like A-B testing within... Uh, campaigns are done, you know, to try two different campaigns across 
segments of an audience and to see which one has a better conversion rate. Tried and true. Everybody's done it. Uh, but to actually be able to have real-time or near-real-time ability to adjust campaigns based off of uh, sentiment analysis and and to really be able to, to use that data uh, at, at large to create uh, movements so that maybe even a campaign uh, is redefined. It doesn't have a, we're going to do this thing from time A to time B. Uh, for a particular audience, you can actually be able to have a campaign be a series of efforts that are occurring that are interactive or more responsive with the audience. And as you're learning more about the audience, you can continue to refine and tailor it uh, based on the data. So th those would be my kind of growth areas going forward. Uh, I think there's, I see money, I see uh, investment uh, ecosystems, you know, companies that are are looking to define and, and shape solutions for different segments. That's, that's how I see them being done. Hmm. And AI World next year is the same place, Boston? Boston in late October. Late October. Oh, well, get to get the leaves changing color. It'd be pretty nice. It should be nice. You need to have in Orlando. We've got a lot of conference areas, you know. They do, and uh, you know that's one of the challenges with a, a growing conference is is picking the right venue where you can get uh, get your audience. Uh, Boston's been a wonderful uh, location for AI World the last two years. It was originally in San Francisco in 2016. Uh, it's going to be back in Boston in 2019, and I, I guess kind of the, the you know as a conference producer and developer the, the what we really tried to set out as a goal for AI world was about getting leaders with uh, both technical and or, or business backgrounds to come talk about their experiences and to share those with their peers. And I feel that AI world has been successful there. So the feedback I received that I'm trying to take to heart is how do we talk more about the failures? Talk about the things that people don't want to talk about. Uh, if we spent years and monies trying to, to make this happen and it just didn't work out. And is that an issue about just uh, anticipating that the technology will be at a certain scale so that they can, so that they can actually fulfill their objective? Or is this a function more about that culture and, and getting the organization to be thinking about how data can be uh, reviewed, can provide insights, uh, new opportunities for, for gathering data and examining it. Uh, maybe it's, it's more about the kind of the open nature of data sets to be able to say, you know, if you're a, uh, a large organization that has uh, been gathering its own weather data, for example, because your industry or your, your business or application needs to make certain decisions based on, on weather at certain locations, you don't have to go gather that now. There's, there's some data sets that you can license that you, know, you could be able to validate trust against. You don't have to go do all of that yourself. So I think the, the marketplace changes over time. Uh, but as, you know, as that happens and we hear about more successes, 
I'm trying to figure out how do you get some of those those lesser known things, the spectacular fails out there that organizations are willing to share, maybe more as a misstep or a lesson learned that they they can impart upon um, their peers or other industries to be able to say, oh, if you're coming up on this decision, here's kind of the way we approached it. And we tried this and it didn't really go the way we wanted. So. I think that's going to come over time where it is really new. I mean, as much as, I mean, I'll take the simplest AI from a consumer perspective, but like Amazon Alexa, it's only been out since 2014. It's a really, and that was the end of 2014. So you can really say 2015. So from a, from a consumer perspective, it's been around for four years and it's still looked at somewhat gimmicky where, you know, I can play music or listen to, you know, ocean waves or, or whatever. But I think there haven't, hasn't been enough time for a lot of spectacular fails yet because companies, unless you're the, the early adopter, which is a very small segment of any group, mm-hmm. you're not going to have that many spectacular fail, fails yet. And, right. And so you're going to have those, those trials and those project-based behaviors. You're going to have that iteration on them. And so that's my only, my only caution to folks is, is that those are all the types of activities that everyone should be pursuing. Go, go figure out what, what it works. Play with it. Tinker with it. See, you know, see how you could be able to, uh, to make it apply to a, to a current challenge or, or opportunity. But then once you've had that kind of first success, step back and think about how would you do this again? How would you, how would you reapproach this knowing what you know now? And there's a lot of insight in there. And uh, so a lot of the interviews that I do for uh, AI Trends, for example, which is the online community for the AI World event, is speaking with executives, not so much about the technology and what their company's doing with it, but asking them, you know, how, how, did, they, how did they get data to be something so critical to the function of their business? How many arguments did they have to go through to be able to get to this to this point to say, "Aha, I, I've I've been able to prove that this is trusted and that it's uh, clean and that it's uh, that it's worth continuing to invest in." And, and how how long does that take? There's I, when thinking about kind of spectacular failures, you know, over time, I, I look at a lot of the massive industry-wide projects that that I've been a part of in some capacity, either as a as a manufacturer and developer of product solutions or as a an industry analyst and observer. And I, I tend to look at things like um you remember municipal Wi-Fi? Yeah. You know that Wi-Fi is just going to be this kind of mesh blanket that no matter where you go, wherever you are, you're going to have some sort of coverage and it'll be on a local level so you'll have better receptivity of the signal and you know maybe it's slower data rates but uh, compared to a mobile a true mobile solution but you could go anywhere and, and and be connected great idea but in the end nobody wants to pay for that infrastructure uh, to then offer it as a low cost or free service um, to take that concept to, to the scale I was referring to though the government of India actually funded a uh, a municipal Wi-Fi project across the Tier 1 cities, which are the largest cities across the country. And it was uh, uh, politically driven. So there were teams of, of 
folks that were voted into office in support of using monies to create this connectivity for these large cities, um, understanding you know, the business value that it would provide of connecting people and, and uh, services. And uh, the reality was that they never even they never were able to get the project deployed at any sort of scale, even within those largest, most connected cities. And the reason for that is that it, it took so long to get things moving. They didn't have an infrastructure, so they actually used universities to receive the products and to configure them and to deploy them, which while it sounds uh, wonderful, you obviously are dealing with uh, uh, folks that, that that's not really their core competency. If you're at a university or you're a student or you're a staff member and you're probably not a good IT person unless that's your your daytime role. And uh, these projects did not outlive uh, the, the cycle for the politicians being in office. Hmm. So after four years, those politicians were all voted out because it was viewed as a, a waste of money. And many of the incumbent or many of the new entrants into those roles uh, won their platform and won their positions because of that, saying this is not how we should spend our money. So then all those monies got taken away and put on other on other pet projects. And as a result, uh, they, they didn't see it through. I, I think those that you know that's a massive scale type of opportunity, but it's something to consider is that if you're in a leadership position within an organization, uh, you kind of need to right-size some of these ambitions that exist too. You can't be thinking about you know, well, this is what I want. Here's my 10-year plan for the company. Uh, you know, the reality is, is that the company may not have the same focus, the same people and resources. Uh, you may not have the same uh, kind of fire in your belly to pursue those in that time frame. So they really need to be kind of brought back to what makes sense. And so some of this low-hanging fruit opportunity is, is where a lot of the machine learning opportunities for where the data analytics uh, come into play now as they can, and for that matter, RPA, robotic process automation, which isn't necessarily a, a learning system. It can be a rules-based engine uh, for like document scanning and, and automation there. But it's, it's a, those are the kinds of things that every company, every size, every budget could be able to look at and, and think of, and figure out if what, what type of improvement will it actually yield. And, and often I find that a lot of the large ambitious projects about adopting automation uh, are, are not company-wide types of things. They're not across every department and every function. They're very isolated. You know, I'm not going to use the word siloed, but they're, gonna, they're, they're definitely isolated. So a particular department has a particular need or challenge or growth opportunity. How do they do that? If you're, if you're a call center, and you're, you're trying to continue to grow your ability to respond quickly and efficiently to a growing customer base, how do you do that without just hiring and hiring and hiring and hiring more people? You can do it through automation to be able to understand how to make it happen. So it's really about having a plan and then finding the sweet spots within your own organization. So things like case studies and you know, hearing stories from others who have kind of blazed the trail are really interesting. The phrase I like to use here is to design for a desired outcome. Don't think about kind of just those incremental steps. 
you know, if, you know, when you're planning, you got to plan about, you know, okay, what are the first steps you're going to take? Absolutely. But in terms of building that vision, look for the desired outcome. You know, what is it that you ultimately want to achieve? And if you can, if you can truly articulate that, then you can start making decisions about technologies and skill sets. Yeah, you can work backwards from the outcome. You can. You can definitely yeah. reverse engineer through it. And, and that, that desi- you know, designing for an outcome, again, I, I kind of think about things that I've been taught over my career. And the first CEO I worked for um, loved to talk in these kind of short phrases. And so his example here was he said, you know, operation's successful, but the patient's dead. <laughs> You know, so if you can, you can be the most skilled surgeon in the world and you can say, well, geez, I just finished a 12 hour um, procedure and it was awesome. But if the patient, if you didn't get that desired outcome, which is the patient is still alive and, you know, and then the gains from, um, from the completion of that, of, of that procedure, why are you doing it? So we need to keep, keep everything in context. Um, you know, there, there's, I, I'm definitely starting to see a, a kind of trend of discussion about kind of busy work versus valued work. And, and then I think, again, it comes back to whether it's artificial intelligence and machine learning or deep learning or what potential quantum computing will bring to, uh, to computing or to algorithmic approaches for solving either, you know, even more complex capabilities or getting to artificial general intelligence or AGI where it's no longer a narrow single kind of focus on the task that's, that's being automated. It's, you know, the, the kind of more of the true Turing test type of a uh, behavior of let's have a conversation and talk about 800 random things uh, to, to see how, to, to see how the system responds. Um, this is a, it's a crawl, walk, run behavior but you kind of need to know where you're going before you, you know, make that not so fast crawl or that mad dash in a particular direction. Um, maybe, maybe not set often enough. Mm, no, I agree. And I guess the important thing is, like we said early on offline was, you know, just to keep the conversation going because it, it tends to be held by, by the geeks, you know, like us, we're, we're the ones that are talking about it. We see the long-term, at least the long-term potential impact. And I know companies are having the discussion too, but in general, I, it's not talked about. And, and, and I, I think because of its impact on the future of work, it needs to be a more open discussion. And the, the impact of regulation and ethics and bias of, of, of AI. If, it ever, if we ever do get to the point of the artificial general intelligence or the technology singularity, mm-hmm. um, those things will become critically important. and. Like I said, I think this is the alien baby that, you know, oh, it's just here. And then you come back a year from now, it's like, oh my God, what happened? And, and this, this has the potential with the advancement of quantum computing and with the way the AI advances have happened just in the past 20 years. If you follow that trend, it, 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 that, that could become a hockey stick, you know, and, and in terms of, of graphing the advancement of AI and its ability to do things. Now, don't get me wrong. I, right now, at least it's, it is, it is a regressive technology. It, yes. is, it looks at the past, whereas we are regressive 
So it's, it doesn't have the same intelligence as us. We're regressive, but we also have the ability to dream and to, and to vision. And that's where it's, it's, not, it's not good at that. It's not good at context. It's not good at tone. Um, it's good at data and making decisions at data. Now, you know, Alpha Zero is supposedly exhibiting signs of intuition when it comes to making moves in, in, in games. But, you know, that could be a slicing and dicing of the definition of intuition or intuitive outcome. But I think we're, we're quite, a way, quite a way a ways from computers dreaming, not to bring up how. But I, I think that we're, we're not, we're, we're a little, we're further than we think from that part. But I don't think we're too far off from seismic shifts in economies. And I, I know we've been talking a long time, but I guess I'd love to get your one, one more insight on how do we democratize this technology for everyone? Because it has the potential where states own it. And states then have the advancement and have the advantage. And, com- and countries today, third world countries, are just based on economics and trying to pull out of poverty and they have debt and corruption. But now with, with AI, if we reach some level, it, it could be where they'll never catch up. They just don't have the ability because we're just, we own it. Yes and no. I mean, a part of me wants to say, you know, a cue podcast into music, right where you, right where you were before you asked me the democratization question. Was a real nice close. Um, I think on, 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 can we get to that kind of point? I don't think, I don't think it's. I think it's something like you're just saying. As humans, we can, we can, we can dream. We can look at that kind of behavior. What I see right now are pockets of movement, pockets of I'll call progress that are occurring within businesses and within industries. They're not happening on countrywide scales. They're not happening on a regional or a global scale by any stretch. And I think the question really is, how can we make this capability available for everyone? And it's, it is, that is a discussion that's occurring in global forums today uh you can swap out ai for for other behaviors like cybersecurity and so forth uh, of how do you approach this you know and how do you bring how do you bring a, a government that is not does not really have a digital presence into an environment where it can utilize its its data and so there is a bit of what I consider to be an AI arms race that's occurring. Yeah. yeah. You know? and, and so the news is all about the U.S. and China. But there are a lot of, and I think it was even uh, uh, Putin from Russia is, is quoted as saying, you know, whoever, whatever governments can capitalize upon, this opportunity first will, will rule the world. I think that's the strength of his quote. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. I, I don't think that it's there, but it's certainly that differentiate or die type of behavior. It's, it's the need to, um, to compete, but to, to do co-opetition, to compete. I like that, co-opetition. I've never heard of that. At the same time, cooperate. 
Yeah, I don't know. But I don't think that I, I see. I hear what you're saying, but I just don't see. Now, I don't want to paint a dystopian future, but at sure. the same time, if a country, if Putin or someone, they, they found the, the magical bullet to the, the quantum computing and AI and were able to reach some magical moment with AI, I don't, I don't see them wanting to share. Um, and if it was able to offer an advantage, whatever that might be, I mean, again, this is futuristic stuff. This is Star Trek. Um, but if it was, why would anybody want to give that up? And I don't even mean it from a, a you know, from a dominant world domination perspective. I mean it from a, you know, we're, we were just talking earlier about how do we make sure we get people who have task driven jobs to be retrained. Yes. Right. But I'm talking about economies now that are purely agricultural based that will no longer be needed because of technology driven agricultural farms, hydroponics, whatever, whatever might be out there that are, that there's scales of efficiency that we have never seen before. Right. And so these countries will basically be, look, agricultural economies just aren't, don't work, aren't efficient. We found better ways. And oh, by the way, you don't have a, an educational system based on advanced technology, never have. And no one's going to invest in it. Or they might become seeds of gold mines in terms of people. Yeah. Suddenly there's this rich resource of people that could be retrained in, into the cyber arena that and it's like, oh my God, we need people. Cause I think that that's going to be a, a critical resource in the future. If we don't have enough people with enough, with enough skills to work in the industries that we're going to need in the future. I, I, I hear everything that you've said. The challenge I face is kind of that it's that last transformation behavior to where humans are no longer in the loop. That, that I think is kind of where that boundary of, of where we might see that dystopian kind of behavior. And maybe there's a, a fair amount of fear about, you know, what are the conditions by which we need to predict to anticipate that kind of a, of a transformation. I, I've, I don't see, at least in the near term, and I, and I think near term f- for this type of discussion is somewhere between 20 and 30 years, I don't see that human-in-the-loop behavior going away. And even in those areas where we could majorly or entirely automate, roboticize, uh, you know, um, software routines, models, and so forth, make decisions. There's still there's still a need for a human in the loop to be able to actually look at things like optimization, tuning, uh, kind of the the management and upkeep. You know, uh, are are the the robotics physical manifestations of robotics and those types of applications like ag tech? Um, do they need to be serviced? Will there be a service robot that will do it? You could argue so, but I think you're you're kind of going off on another vector and another time frame to be able to do it. You're still talking about you know humans in that in that you still need humans to be able to uh, decide what data is relevant and so forth. So until uh, until we can anticipate that there is some sort of capability where code is writing code. 
I, I, I'm challenged by, by seeing that kind of behavior. Not that it can't be, you know, can't ever happen, but I, I think, think the that that's well just, in the future if that ever happens. Yeah, it would stop. I, yeah. I, there, you know, I kind of look at the, that AI arms race a little different, which is anytime there is an impetus for change, I view it as an opportunity. And so we could be thinking about governments at this scale, you know, just going and looking. There's about 20, 20 or so countries that have announced national AI plans. And that could be everything from areas of investment, areas of focus, to um, research, to, uh, to, to basically trying to address some of their goals. They're trying to figure out what some of those kind of desired outcomes will be. And so the change opportunity that exists here is to be able to position a country and its resources and its talent as valuable in whatever that new kind of AI economy is. And so that's, it's very good for countries that may have a lot of resources who can answer to the skills gap maybe that some countries are missing um, i i'm i think i kind of look at china as china as unique from the united states or even canada i think canada for example is doing a great job of articulating its value and and how much um its resources, its institutions, uh, its government has put into developing that AI economy and, and creating new opportunities. Um, you know, that said, it and it was one of the first, in fact, to to put together a national plan for AI. What you know, thinking almost like a, almost like a business that just because they were first doesn't mean they get to stay there. You know, right, others right. can can quickly surpass them depending on how that's used, you know? So if, um, this is a bit of a North American humor piece, but, you know, look at, uh, in the United States, we tend to think about a lot of comedians and how great they are and how funny they are. And, and then if you kind of look back, there's a pretty high percentage that got their start, um, being raised in Canada. Not that AI will go the same way as, uh, as, as comedy, uh, actors and actresses, but, we could certainly look at um, those kind of roots and then figure out how how is it going to instantiate itself? You know, how does it retain that leadership? Uh, where does it retain that leadership, and how is it being used? You know, is is that talent making its way from Canada to the U.S., for example, or is it going into other parts of the world? Uh, are, is the information that's being produced considered to be more in the public domain and therefore more of an open source type approach where everyone can get value from it. Is and it I think a good that's model for what a government does? Is being yeah. able to open source AI. That would be ideal because, like I said, the, the goal would be to democratize AI for the world to be able to leverage to improve everyone's lifestyle and everyone's... Yeah. But maybe, it, we're, maybe we're going to see a, a GitHub type yeah, equivalent for... For models and for data sets, and I don't think yeah. you know other than branding at GitHub, right, or whatever that that piece should be. I mean, I've already those those pieces are already starting. There are entities that have created repositories and lookups and search references for 
for models like you were describing you know if if you're doing uh, predictive analytics on sales behaviors across geographic territories you don't need to go and create that there's lots of models that are already, already out exist there yeah. and lots of entities that have proven it out and will help you know integrate it into um, into your systems the the same thing exists with the data sets. There's, you, you, you want to make something that does image classification. There's lots of uh, data sets out there to be able to, to train your data against. Um, we've seen this with facial recognition types of tools. We've seen this with uh, uh, kind of the behaviors in, in driving environments for autonomous and self-driving vehicles. All that a, data is crowd, crowdsourced, essentially. Recording the data from how we drive today, which is pretty amazing. And the work between those experiments on existing data sets versus the reality of having a class five autonomous, you know, pilotless vehicle uh, on the on a commercial or not on a commercial, but in a you know, in a public driving setting um, that we don't have to worry about uh, its judgment and decision making. It's all about looking for exceptions. You know, so we have, there's tons of image information that tell you about what you should anticipate going down a highway in a certain country and signs and markers and so forth. There's not a whole lot of data, though, that tells you what a pothole looks like. So, you know, it may be really efficient at navigating down a highway with other vehicles, but something like a pothole is an anomaly. It's an exception to what it's used to seeing. So, And we're really good at the exception part. That's the thing. Humans are awesome, right? Yeah, our we are eyes, really good. Our at eyes it. are connected to our hands and, yeah. and through our brain, and we steer right into those potholes when we try. So we <laughs> there's a lot of um, there's those real world environments that are, that are are kind of the gap that's being worked through now. And of course, we'll never catch them all, but we can start to typify them. We can start to say, you know, when should you avoid interacting with that pothole versus when is it okay? Yeah, it's the lesser of two evils. You swerve, you hit something else, hit the pothole. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And if it's about creating a good experience, you know, then it's about speed, it's about comfort. There's a whole whole other set of things that you want to do because your passengers may not like your. You may have the vehicle, and the vehicle may have the capability to avoid something at a high rate of speed, but your passengers may uh, not like the whatever passengers do in the back and of that, autonomous vehicles. And that goes <laughs> back to what you said earlier: it's context. If I'm off roading. That's perfectly okay. <laughs> yeah. If I'm on the autobahn, I don't want to hit it. That's right. right. And so well, that, I think all, all those are all, all those things still have to be learned. And so there's there's not a a one size fits all behavior. And, and and frankly, when it comes to things like you know, should we be worried about industries becoming so automated that you know humans don't have to work anymore? I, I think. I think it's interesting to, to to consider what that might look like, but then coming back to like I was saying, um, design for that desired outcome. You know, is that really the the outcome that you want to deal with? I mean, that and is that it, is it the optimal outcome? I mean, yeah, it's is that actionable. is that optimal? You know, like, well, do I really want zero people? Is it is that does that really help me? Where is, where does all is is the creativity in a handful of people then, or is it best to have? a diverse group of people that can bounce ideas off of and we can come up with new solutions versus just 
automatons, you know? Like, so, like you said, back to what you're, you, you've been saying the whole time, which is design for your outcome and, and work from there. And you will find examples, you know, hazardous environments make total sense. You know, why risk human exposure to those environments yeah, or, yeah. or, you know, hazardous Bomb squads, exposures, totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you want that kind of automation to be able to go there where it can be disposable in a sense. Uh, you're not putting humans at risk. That's a perfect application for it. And it is something that you could find the industries and the applications today where you can de-risk uh, the human component to it. And it's, you know, it's, yes, you need to train bomb technicians to be able to defuse certain situations, but do you need to physically risk them to be able to accomplish that, that particular task or mission? Uh, you know, there's great ways. Uh, or then is it just more of a convenience type behavior of the, you know, as human, I'm too lazy to go flip that burger on the grill. I'm going to have a machine do it for me and decide when it's properly cooked. And that's, and that's a great way to close out because that circles back to the tech for tech sake. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, I, I can do it, but does it really make sense to do it? Um, and am I really going to save any money? But Jeff, I, I, the, the time I really appreciate that you've given us today, it's, it was an awesome conversation. We talked about so many different things, uh, and I definitely want to do it again sometime. Absolutely. So, uh, if you're, if you're ever down in the Orlando area, you've got to look me up so we can hook up and have a, a face-to-face conversation. Yeah, but, we'll uh, do. Is there anything you want to tell, is there anything coming up you want to tell the, the audience? about either AI World or other events that you're participating in? Yeah, I mentioned the for AI World in 2019, it'll be in Boston in the uh, latter part of October. But before that, uh, we're actually kicking off uh, a new kind of spin-out uh, that's looking at the public sector and government and how they can approach automation and artificial intelligence called AI World Gov. Uh, it'll be in Washington, D.C. in June. And you can find more online at AIWorldGov.com. Well, and, and I wish you luck with AI World. Hopefully, uh, I might actually come up there next year. To, to Love Boston. to have you. I've never been to Boston. So, uh, again, thank you for your time. It's been a great conversation. And I uh, wish you all the best in the new year. Thank you. Likewise, I appreciate appreciate the uh, the opportunity to discuss uh, what is happening and what might be coming next. It's been my pleasure. You know, it's funny. We stayed on for probably another twenty minutes after that. I mean, Jeff and I could geek out all day long, but I think we covered some pretty important topics about the clipboard workforce and um, how we're going to need to deal with, as I said earlier. Uh, the future of work. Jeff used the term coopetition, I think it was, which I, I'm going to use all the time now. I thought that was a pretty cool word. And Jeff's a, a pretty firm believer that there's always going to be some form of human in, in not some form, there's humans have one form, um, that there'll always be a human in the mix, in the chain, so to speak, which I talked a little bit about in the beginning. The other thing that we talked about was, or Jeff brought this up really, is designing with the outcome in mind. You know, we can, I don't say we can uh, stem off or, or avoid any of the, you know, the, the dystopian visions of the future if we 
plan ahead or design with our outcome in mind. If our outcome is that we are, you know, we're going to have AI, but it's not going to replace everyone. And, and then we design around that. Now, I don't know, honestly, how realistic that is. I actually don't know if AI is going to be this all-inclusive or all-encompassing thing that I tend to talk about. But as Jeff said, the clever we are a very clever species and we will come up with new industries. We will come up with new things that we haven't even thought about that will require people to work there. Um, new industries are spun up all the time as technologies come up because we are pretty innovative, which is one of our best features. And as long as we can democratize that, which I use often uh, globally, then I think we'll be okay. But I like his idea of, you know, trying to at least design with the outcome in mind. And that'll get you closer than if you didn't think about it at all. And that's, again, why we do this, why we, we talk about it, to try to plan or design with that outcome in mind. Well, I want to thank you again for joining me for another episode of Society 2.0. And please send me your comments and feedback. And as always, I look forward to seeing you next week.